Welcome to the Aristia podcast, where experts talk about excellence. Our podcast format includes a young professional early in their career talking to an expert for academic and industry insights. At some point, we turn the tables around where the expert asks the young professional about their agonies, dreams and aspirations about their field. In today's podcast, our expert is Vasilis Ngiachristos, professor of Technical University of Munich, Germany, and the director of the Institute of Biological and Medical Imaging in Munich. Our young professional is Georgios Siokatas, Master of Science student in Applications in Biology, Department of Biology in Aristotle University of Thessaloniki in Greece. So uh, thanks for speaking us uh, with us today, Dr. Giachristos. First of all, uh, could you share with our audience your current role? So I'm in, I'm in Munich. I'm the director of the chair for biological imaging at the Technical University of Munich. I'm also uh, the director of the Institute for Biological and Medical Imaging at the Helmholtz Munich. And I also have roles in, um, um, essentially, I'm the director, I'm the head of the Department for Bioengineering at the Helmholtz Munich and at the um, Helmholtz Pioneer Campus and in the board of directors in Translatum. So I have a lot of different roles uh, that within bioengineering across Munich and across two institutions. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Uh, could you share with us about how your journey started to where you are right now? Yeah, great. Um, so it started um, in Thessaloniki, where you're studying right now. Uh, I did electrical engineering there, and uh, I go to telecommunications, but uh, very quickly I, I got attracted by medical imaging. So pretty much I started doing medical imaging when I was 20 years old in, uh, in Thessaloniki. And then I, I moved to Denmark to uh, do magnetic resonance spectroscopy. From there, I, I went to the US. I did my master's and PhD at uh, Philadelphia at UPenn. Um, and then I became faculty in Boston at Harvard and came back to Europe in 2007 in Germany. That's a really interesting journey. Uh, so can you tell me how was your shift from an undergraduate student here in Greece to the United States? Yeah, in my case, um, I was not uh, this uh, determined person that knew that I want to go to the US. Um, I think I started exploring possibilities in Greece, but then quickly I realized that it was, uh, yeah, it was difficult. I mean, in, uh, in, in, in the 90s there, there were not a lot of things happening. And so I got a fellowship to go to Denmark and I went there to just explore. So I, I initially I went there for six months, but as soon as I arrived within three months, I realized that there's so much more, unfortunately, outside Greece that I wanted to explore. And so I, I decided to go to the best place then that was known back then for science and that was US. So once I kind of like found myself outside Greece, it was then very evident that I had to go and study in the US. I see. So you said that you started working with biological imaging at your 20s. What drove you actually to pursue this career in bioengineering and in biological imaging in particular? Yeah. So I like engineering, but I, 
I didn't like the very applied stuff. I wanted to have that, you know, be between uh, sort of more scientific exploration and application. So I could see that my role was not going to be in an industry, sort of like in a production line or something like this, the more classical things. Um, and in particular, then within health, you know, health is one of these big unsolved problems. Um, so anything else, you know, the algorithmic parts, I found them, of course, you know, the, the algorithms sort of like evolved and everything with it, you know, internet and applications. But it seemed to me more trivial and somehow medicine seemed to be much more challenging and much more interesting to me. Plus, you had the benefit to really kind of help people uh, much more than just being able to communicate easier. So although I started the communications with all the protocols, you know, and this uh, initial type of uh, means of social or digital networking, just medicine attracted me more because it's, in my eyes, it was such a much more interesting problem and challenging problem um, with a, a lot of unsolved directions. And they are still unsolved. But I think it's, it's, it was very, very attractive to me. Yeah, you seem really excited in medicinal imaging. And is there something in particular that excites you most about your work? And what is the least exciting part of it? <laughs> so I think certainly the, the, the biggest excitement comes from uh, getting methods that they have potential to, to help patients. And um, I think we like publications and all of these metrics. And, but I, I think that the fundamental thing is to actually do something that will have a next step into patients. So I think that is still my driving force. The least exciting, I would say, is sort of like the uh, senseless accumulation of meetings, uh, especially in administrative world. So I think that is essentially what I have to endure in order to do what I actually like to do. I see. Uh, could you tell us more about what scientific questions are deeply interesting you uh, right now? Uh, we, we have a bunch, but I think the first one that comes to mind, the one that is maybe the most important for us is we want to move medicine from hospitals and doctor offices into homes and, and sort of like portable systems and sensors. And the reason we want to do this is on one hand, the overall reducing the burden of healthcare, but the most important reason we want to do this is because we want to move towards earlier detection. We do not, we do not find, so I do not find that the concept that you feel something in your body with your own sensors and, and then get worried and then go to the doctor and then sort of like go through a bunch of diagnostic tests just to find out what actually it is that you have. Um, it's the right way of administering medicine because when you develop symptoms, it's already kind of late. I mean, there's already a disease that has progressed and has affected sensory systems and now you feel it as a symptom, as a clinical symptom. What we want to have is we want to have sensors that they will see changes much, much earlier. And then of course, through combination of the information you're collecting, you can start at least warning people. I mean, this cannot, maybe it's not diagnostic in the beginning, but at least much earlier, you're going to tell people to go and seek some attention, some intervention in a much more quantitative and informative way. And that could be in your bathroom every, every morning where you take a measurement of yourself. It doesn't have to be portable necessarily. It doesn't have to be on your watch, but it could also be so portable as being in the watch. So we're, we're also looking at this, this category. 
this this direction at least of sensors. I see. So, uh, is this uh, what you would say that it's the short term, short future uh, of biological imaging? And what is, in your opinion, the next big step in your field? Yeah. So I think this part of making it more uh, sort of like having having it distributed, disseminated to more people in a form of sensing rather than, you know, this radiological imaging with the big machines that we have in mind. This is certainly um, uh, one of our goals. And the way we see it is uh, sometimes I bring this example where, you know, in the past you would, um, you would, you know, in the 60s and the 50s, you would have like a car and drive in the street and, and then you would see smoke coming from, from the hood, you know, and then pretty much that was a catastrophic failure. You had to, to, to stop interrupt your trip or whatever you were doing, somebody would have to come and load your car and maybe it was catastrophic, maybe they would restore it, but pretty much your day was, was ruined. Um, and then now cars have a lot of these sensor systems and, and they can sense something is going off and a little orange light comes on on your dashboard and then you just go and get service and everything is done and you don't interrupt any trips or anything. We want to do this with a human body as well, where you, um, you start sensing things much earlier uh, and you know, so before you have a catastrophic event, you can go and seek help. And obviously, by having intervention applied to you earlier, it could be curative in many cases instead of just, uh, you know, instead of sort of like treating your symptoms and just prolonging your life and some of the worst diseases. Um, and so, this goal of bringing imaging, as I said, to the homes, like micro imaging or sensing, I think this is where I see the future of that field. You see, that's, uh, I think that's, in my mind, this is really difficult to do, but I, I would most agree that uh, this would be wonderful to do. So uh, how did COVID-19 pandemic impact your work? Did it impact it, actually? I sure, of course. I mean, we're, we're missing the sort of the uh, proximity of people, the exchange, the more free exchange of ideas as you would do in kind of like the social part of conferences and things that has been um, the, you know, the, the places where you actually generate a lot of these ideas. Um, we, we miss the, the part where groups, big groups come, come spontaneously together. And it's one thing to have people in the same room, obviously, and, you know, understand them and read their body language as well and just interact at a different level on this social media. Um, so it has interrupted uh, activities. Obviously, in the beginning, also just accessing the labs was difficult. So in a way, that slowed down things. Um, I am very worried about the morale of many people. I mean, we're doing as much as possible um, to, to keep people alert and motivated and happy. But it's, again, much more difficult to assess it uh, and to implement it by, you know, using um, a computer. So I think all of these have suffered. I think it's common. I'm not saying something that is new to people, but I think we're all suffering through, through these things, yes. I see. So I wanted to ask you another question. Uh, was there anything that would have astonished you as a younger person when you initially started out? of what you've done through here, I mean, 
If you talk to yourself uh, when you were 18 years old, would it be something that you would tell that I have achieved that and I'm really proud of it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think I, for my 18-year-old self, um, back then, you know, uh, with the limited information we had, you know, there was no internet, not Google when, you, when I was in high school. So there was very little ability to assess a lot of different things. Um, so I, I would never have thought that I would have followed this course. And in truth, it did came step by step. But uh, sometimes I look back and I, yeah, I am sort of proud and happy that this happened. I also realized that maybe that, um, you know, all of this generation back then, I think we were limited compared to, to, to the people now, to the, to the kids now, because of that infor- uh, access to information they have. I mean, just as a fun thing, if you wanted to learn something about um, English, a British university, you have to go to the to go to the British Council and open a big book that had pages that they were giving a little description of the university. So you would be flipping through the pages. I mean, can you imagine how basic and difficult it was to get information about how the world works in a Greece that you know it was still kind of evolving and it was coming from you know all of the historical issues that it had. So I also see that as a limitation because you set off with a big picture or a sort of like a, let, let's say a big dream um, for, 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 the, for the Greeks of that time, which is, it could have been even bigger if you were living in a situation, you know, that, that you had information, uh, access to, to different information. So on one hand, I'm astonished. On, on, on the other, I'm thinking that it was, I still did a lot of, some of the choices I did were conservative because I was coming from such a conservative or limited information environment back then, at least when it comes to scientific development. But all in all, I think it, uh, it turned out pretty good. So I think it's, yeah, it has been, it has been a good course. Okay, I agree. Uh, throughout your journey, uh, has someone been uh, your greatest role model? And is it important for a young scientist to have a role model uh, or a mentor? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So one of, one of the points that I really was lucky is that when I was to, uh, I went to the US, um, my advisor was a legend in the field. His name was Britton Chance. He was a sort of like a very famous biochemist back then. He had done a lot of the discoveries with mitochondria and, and um, different biochemical, biological systems. He was old by the time I joined his lab, but he had this amazing life where his dad was sailing and himself as a kid was sailing with Ernest Hemingway and he was then developing radars for MIT for the Second World War. He got an Olympic gold sailing in sailing in 51 in Helsinki. And then he was this big scientist and um, he knew Grace Kelly and he was sailing with the Prince of Monaco. So he had like this, you know, this larger than life personality. And I think this is where sort of like it relates a little bit with my previous comment where kind of my perspective of the world changed because then you are with a person like this that tells you, well, you know, nothing is impossible. You can do whatever you want as long as you, as you aim for it. And, 
it was a life-changing experience. So I think um, for young people to really partner, to find a mentor that by example and by advice, of course, as well, shows them their limits, maybe kind of like enables them to find their limits. I mean, I think that, that, that would be wonderful. So absolutely, find a good mentor. I see. So uh, how would you define Aristia? I mean, how would you define excellence? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I, I guess this definition has been given many times. So uh, I, I am probably the least qualified person. But uh, as, as usually they say, I mean, really trying to, to do the best that uh, your ability allows and uh, don't give up and push always to, to find your good limit. Um, I would say that this would be excellence. That would be Aristia. I see. I strongly agree with you, and I agree with the last that you said that everything is possible, and uh, you have to. If you aim for it, you can achieve it. So, speaking about uh, excellent and Aristia, so uh, we had a class in my masters where we learned about the how the first electron microscope was designed, and we learned that Enstruska designed it and I saw that he was a student in TUM where you are right now so is it somehow a motivation to be part of a university that people like uh, Ernst Ruska studied and started their journey to excellence? Yeah I think I, I think people that they stay at university they have this mindset so in a way it's a give and take um, um, so the university or an academic world typically allows you more freely, not that you cannot do this in other environments, but the university traditional has allowed, enable people to think outside the box and try their ideas, you know, by attracting their funding and then exploring their own ideas. And I think people that they do have that inventive um, inclination Sometimes, not all of them, I mean, some of them start their own companies, but some of them find it attractive to stay in a university environment and explore that. So I think it's, it, it goes hand in hand, university and this innovation culture. Yes, yeah, so uh, you had, I guess you had throughout your career uh, many different collaborations with other scientists. Uh, was there any of these collaborations in particular that was your favorite? Oh, so many. I mean, I was I was blessed with excellent collaborators, really bright minds and motivated people. I mean, I um, we had this uh, wonderful collaboration with uh, clinicians in the Netherlands, for example, Govan Dam, now Wouter Nangengast, where we're developing these fluorescence techniques for medicine, for endoscopy, for surgery. With Harvard, so many in, in this Boston environment, in MGH, uh, so many bright minds uh, still keeping collaboration with Farouk Jaffer there in cardiology, but so many other brilliant minds. I mean, too many to mention right now. And of course, in Munich as well. I still keep ties with people in Thessaloniki. I think, I mean, this is a, this is a beautiful part of, uh, again, the academic world, not that I know very well the other worlds, but that you meet brilliant people on uh, the way there, brilliant and good people, and you, you, you develop, you know, strong relationships and friendships uh, based on this common interest to to advance uh, technology in the world and um yeah just 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 many so too many to mention in uh, 
in, in 30 minutes. I see. I, I think that the, this is really exciting to, uh, as you go forward to meet new people and uh, talk about your ideas, uh, I think this is really, really good. So uh, when I said to you, I, I saw that you have uh, worked with optoacoustic imaging, if I'm correct. So in simple terms, uh, what is this technique and what is the novelty that this method brought to diagnostics and research? Yeah, optoacoustic is a fascinating method because um, just to, to explain it very, very quickly, and, but also in, in very plain terms, um, optical, you know, optical imaging and optical investigation is everywhere. Since the time of Hippocrates, the surgeons still look their eyes to cut disease and do curative treatment essentially endoscopies will diagnose dermatologists will look essentially with their eyes or some color images um, and the problem is there that there's not enough contrast many times and that the eyes cannot see under the surface so it has always been uh, the challenge for me how can we use light to to see under the surface and there are different techniques but optoacoustic is a method that really gives a major solution to this so, you know, optical microscopy can only penetrate maximum half a millimeter or so. Optoacoustic can go for centimeters. But, um, and it does this uh, by, instead of using light cameras to detect light, it uses ultrasound detectors. And there is a conversion effect of light to sound happening in tissue with the way that you illuminate. And by using ultrasound now, you can have high resolution imaging for the first time, optical imaging, for the first time after 350 years since the discovery of the microscope. So I think it's a, it's a breakthrough in the imaging sciences, but also potentially in diagnostics and therapeutics, because we can use now the light to see under the surface in high resolution, much deeper than microscopy. Uh, we're enabling a lot of new applications with this technology. And I think there's, there's more to come. Uh, I mean, we have just developed the basics and I think we're moving more and more clinical now. I think it's a very exciting time for optoacoustics. So you say, say, would you say that this is also a next big step in your field, as I told you earlier? Yeah, I think the potential is demonstrated and now it's, it's about time to find the clinical applications, the niche applications. So I think optoacoustic has already kind of was demonstrated in the past decade or so. And what we're waiting for now is to find some um, tangible targets um, and realistic clinical applications. But from the more basic technology discovery standpoint, I think, as I mentioned, converting this now to disseminated measurement, miniaturizing it, putting it into the hands of people at home, I think that would be the next major breakthrough from where we stand, at least. I see this it really sounds very fascinating. Yeah, so um, what would you, uh, how can I say this? Uh, what would be the best advice you'd give to a student interested in engineering or in science in general? Um, well, I, I think, I think the, the classical advice here is to really follow your dream and aim high. So you have to, don't, don't be afraid to set high goals. I mean, the worst that can happen is you don't meet, but there's a good chance that you do. So set, set high goals. And in particular for engineering, 
um, look to solve an important problem. So I was teaching this course at the university case studies uh, some years ago. I, I, I switched it to bioengineering now, but, um, and I was telling people that, you know, people that they can successfully learn what they, they, they teach at university, they become good engineers and they, they, they make money. But the people that manage to set good problems and then solve them, they, they become even more successful. So I would say seek for a problem. There's a lot of uh, problems. And then once you define the problem, try to find a good solution. That, that is an even better way of evolving. Um, and by the way, I mean, I wanted to also sort of like learn from you. Uh, I know that you are moving now from Greece to, uh, to the US. And I was wondering what, what, because, you know, I did that 25 years ago, 30 years ago. So I was wondering what now stimulates you to go to the US from Greece? So, um, uh, for myself, uh, from the first time I uh, got in touch with the principles of basic, really basic principles of molecular biology in at the end of a second grade of high school, I somehow uh, took the decision that I want to do research, I want to become a researcher, and everything I've done from there uh, was pointed to that aim, to that goal. So uh, what I always uh, used to hear is that United States is... Uh, like an oasis for uh, research. And I, I think that from that moment and when I got to the university and then this was my goal to somehow uh, go to United States, work there, do my do research there and stuff. Uh, yeah. So what is it that you miss in, in Greece that you believe you're going to find in the US? Mm, there are a lot of things that I miss in Greece. Uh, <laughs> I think the big problem in Greece uh, is that not uh, many people uh, uh, understand uh, that research is really important. And I mean, the, the people that have the money i don't know how to say this so i think that the most important problem here in greece and uh, as far as the research is concerned is the lack of funds and throughout the two years that i have been part of a lab here in aristotle university of the saloniki uh, i have seen this problem a lot Yeah, funding it's it's important and indeed in, in the in the US is better. Um, do you do you think you're gonna have from a sort of like a, a intellectual stimulation? Um, have you been happy with what you you have seen in Greece so far? Do you believe that sort of like when you go to conferences that that on the intellectual part it's similar? I know it's a difficult question, but essentially what I'm asking is, is the within the academic environment in Greece, are people excited to do research? Uh, do you, do you, are you there satisfied with what you see? 
the people I met, the professors I met, the PhD students I met, the postdoc students I met, I think everyone is really excited about research. Uh, and that is what uh, makes me, how to say it, uh, angry the most, that there are so many people that they are excited to do research. They are excited to find new things. They, they want to help. They want to move forward. And uh, not only because they want it, but they want to help people this way. So uh, that... Yeah, the people that I met are uh, really, really uh, excited to do what they do, to do research. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's and, my impression too. So I'm happy that you confirmed that. Yeah. Yeah. So to maybe wrap things up, uh, the last question is in a perfect setting for dinner, where would that be? Whom would you invite? You can invite any person. What would you order to eat? And what song would play in the background? <laughs> so um, oh, there's so many ways to answer this question. Um, so many places to eat and so many amazing people to invite. But you know, um, I think I would be uh, going with a person that is so much in the media and because I have some serious questions for him. Um, and in fact, we did study in the same school and we kind of had the same advisor. Well, it was my advisor and I think um, uh, my advisor was in the committee of this person. Anyways, this person is Elon Musk. <laughs> uh, he went through UPenn, we kind of like coincided. He went through physics and um, I never met him there, but uh, we coincided and obviously, you know, his uh, trajectory has gone to space. And um, I think probably we'd meet in New York in a steakhouse, some ribeye and there would be some sort of like New York jazz in the background and um, it would be him. And I think I would, I wanted to, to ask him sort of like, what's the difference? I mean, my curiosity is, um, at the end of the day, how he can manage to do so many things. So I think, at least from my standpoint, it will be an interesting discussion. I don't know, probably for him, not so much. But anyways, that would be <laughs> I see, I see. I, I mean, uh, Elon Musk is... Uh, I, I, all, I would always want to meet him in person and ask him so many things, too. I mean... You must take the A train to go to Sugar Hill way up in Harlem If you miss the A train You'll find you've missed the quickest way to Harlem Hurry, get on, now it's coming Listen to those rails are thrumming On oh, board, get on the A Beep, 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 beep.
Thank you again for speaking with us. And it was really, really nice meeting you. And the things that I heard today uh, really helped me to know more. And I hope that it will help our audience too. Great. Thank you so much for the interest. I also enjoyed the discussion. And best of luck in the US. I really hope that you find what you're setting up to, to find over there. Thank you. Thank you very much. A huge thank you to Dr. Vasilis Giachristos and Georgios Sokatas for today's podcast, Aristia in 30 Minutes, where experts talk about excellence.